The modern synthesis is a pillar of biology. First proposed about 80 years ago, the synthesis brought together two major ideas, Darwin's theory of natural selection and Mendel's theory of genetic inheritance to explain and predict how populations evolve. The modern synthesis is powerful because it allows us to quantify the relative effects of genetic differences on phenotypes amidst a suite of competing influences. In turn, such quantification can be used to predict the direction and speed that traits evolve. That's an amazing fundamental breakthrough and one with enormous utility, allowing us, among other things, to more readily breed bigger and better livestock and engineer drought and pest-resistant crops. Another advantage of the modern synthesis is that it disentangles four of the critical components of evolution, mutation, drift, selection, and migration. Work on each of the four has coalesced into flourishing subfields of evolutionary biology, as the synthesis gave us a way to probe the effects of each process independently on evolution. These successes, however, required some serious abstraction. Instead of explaining how selection works on individual organisms, the synthesis focused on the more tractable idea of the genetic variant involved in evolution. In this framework, for example, abstraction reduced the struggle for existence that Darwin imagined to differential transmission of idealized genotypes. In the past few decades, new ideas have emerged or have been rediscovered that challenge the sufficiency of this standard evolutionary theory. These ideas include phenotypic plasticity, niche construction, and epigenetic inheritance. And some biologists argue that these and other phenomena collectively pose a big enough challenge that we need a new extended evolutionary synthesis. Many biologists, perhaps most, disagree. But these debates have led to vigorous and often productive arguments about the collective forces, spanning multiple levels of biological organization that underlie evolution by natural selection. We're obviously not going to resolve this debate today, but we are going to talk with Dennis Walsh, a philosopher of biology at the University of Toronto, about a potentially key missing element in our theory, one that we've touched on in previous shows with Scott Turner, Paul Davies, and others. It's an idea called agency. In his 2015 book, Organisms, Agency, and Evolution, Dennis argues that the abstraction that made the modern synthesis so successful is partly responsible for the grand and probably overstated power that is now ascribed to genes. Without question, genes are integral to evolution, but their roles are not as straightforward as the modern synthesis implies. To Dennis, evolution depends not just on genetic differences among trait variants and selection, but also on agency, the ability of individual organisms to draw on their past experiences, sense their current world, and decide about what to do in response to opportunities and threats. Dennis calls these opportunities and threats affordances. In his book, Dennis offers the beginnings of just such a theory, with agency as an important force in evolution. He calls this theory situated Darwinism. In his framework, evolution occurs as agents seek out resources, avoid danger, and generally expose their genotypes to different selective pressures. In other words, they struggle for existence, just as Darwin emphasized. How do they do this? Well, they do this actively. They actively change their environments, they actively change their experiences in their environment, and they actively change their component processes and structures and functions, right? So agency is this capacity, this unique capacity of organisms to, like, as it were, uh, be kind of authors of the experience of their environment. They don't have final control over what their environments are like, but they can, they can, as I say, transduce these experiences, transduce these features of the environment, and, uh, adapt to them. What's different about Dennis's perspective is that organisms don't play a passive role in the manner by which selection acts on them. Think of selection as a sieve. 
in the modern synthesis, organisms were really not given any power to affect the extent to which they were represented in the next generation. Organisms had traits, some fraction of which was related to genes. And the extent to which such genetic variants were transmitted across generations is evolution. To Dennis and others, this framework minimizes the critical, active way that agents exploit and avoid particular contexts. Environments both induce and select trait variation. So if individuals have the predispositions to choose environments, the outcomes of evolution should be quite different from the perspective of the modern synthesis. To use a trivial but great example from a friend of the show, Mike Levin at Tufts, consider the behavior of a ball versus a mouse on the top of a hill. The consequences of gravity will be quite different for the former than the latter, should either one start moving down the slope. On today's episode, we talk with Dennis about situated Darwinism, the roles of agency and affordances in evolution, and the potential unification of biology that could come from refocusing on organisms and their struggles. I'm Marty Martin. And I'm Art Woods. And this is Big Biology. All right, well, let's jump in. That's a, that's a wonderful sort of transition into where we're going to go in, talking about your book, Organisms, Agency, and Evolution. And it's just an amazing book, but it's also chock full of lots and lots of things that in, if we're going to do four hours of conversation, if you're willing, maybe we can get the most elements, but um, I imagine we don't have that much time. So what we're going to try to do is get through the history of evolutionary thinking in the first part of the show so we can spend most of the time about your ideas, what you call situated Darwinism in particular, and then sort of the ramifications of that for where biology might be going and how biologists like Art and me might, you know, operate um, as we do our our own studies. So some of the material we're going to talk about, um, we've touched with Dennis Noble, with Paul Davies, with Scott Turner, with Massimo Piliucci, a lot of, uh, you know, folks with whom you've you've interacted. Um, and we're going to lean on those episodes for some of the things that we just won't have time for today. So if anybody is listening and we go too quickly through something, there's a bunch of other uh, shows that we have done. And then, of course, your book that, that covers a lot of those areas. We want to start from, again, this history. And there's sort of, my understanding, two points in history where most of what we think about evolutionary theory today, where they, where they can be sort of derived. Darwin's original ideas, no, not surprisingly, about the struggle for existence among organisms. And then many years later, the modern synthesis, which sort of merged his ideas with Mendel's discoveries about inheritance, added a lot more math and especially statistics to evolutionary biology. And then that's sort of been um, um, how, how most of evolutionary biology has progressed today. So let's start with that. Let's start with that modern synthesis period. And if you could quickly define what it is, its major contributions, and I mean, I think the main thing is to tell us why it's been so powerful. These ideas like GWAS and the breeder's equation and these other things that have been super useful in biology in general. Right. Yes. Well, that that's a challenge. So, I, um, <laughs> Sorry. no, no, that's um, a really important question. And one of the things that's important not to do is to kind of put the modern synthesis into this definitional straitjacket. So a few years ago, a colleague uh, of mine, Friedrich Bündemann, and I uh, published this collection of essays challenging the modern synthesis. And some of the critical uh, kickback, which I think is quite legitimate, was saying, well, we had a kind of narrow conception of the modern synthesis. And it was a much more commodious you know, uh, idea than, than we have allowed. So we have to be very careful with kind of um, 
trying to, uh, with defining the modern synthesis as a straw man that we can knock down. So it's a very multifaceted and sophisticated you know, um, uh, collection of thoughts. That said, I think we can um, see the um, central pillars of it as the idea that um, the unit of, of theoretical significance is the gene and less so the organism. And in the book, I make this claim that, um, uh, that another of the kind of metaphysical commitments of the modern synthesis is what I call the fractionation of evolution, right? So what do you need for evolution to happen? Well, you need some kind of memory system. You need constancy across generations. And then you need, of course, organisms start off simple and they get complicated. So you need a process that takes them from, from zygote, in the case of um, sexually reproducing things, to reproducing adults. Um, and then you need um, something uh, that innovates. You need new characters coming along from time to time. And then you need a process that biases. Uh, so if, you, if evolution is going to be adaptive, then you need a, um, a process that introduces an adaptive bias. And the really elegant thing about the modern synthesis is that, um, so it sets up the, the gene as this unit of theoretical importance. And then the gene, is the unit of uh, significance in, in each of our theories of uh, memory, inheritance, innovation, that's mutation, development, that's just transcription basically, and, and then uh, so selection is the winnowing, the differential winnowing of genes. So each of the component processes of evolution is grounded in the dynamics of genes. And the really crucial thing about the modern synthesis, I think, is that um, each of these processes is discrete. And so you can study them independently of the influences of the others. So you can study inheritance as just the passing on of genes. You can uh, study novelty as, the, as, the, uh, as mutation and recombination of genes. You can study development as the expression of information in genes, and you can study adaptation as the differential retention of genes in a population. And, and, and so crucially, so natural selection doesn't introduce any novelties, and so you get to study natural selection independently of the sources of novelties. Um, the introduction of novelties doesn't introduce any adaptive bias, so you just study mutation independently of its effect on adaptation. Things like that. So, so would you say, I mean, I mean to me that, that feels like a, I think we're gonna get into the problems that arise from that sort of fractionation, but that also feels like a powerful reductive mechanism in the sense that it allows you know, individual scientists or groups to focus their attention very intently on one of those things and make, make significant progress. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And that in, is in part what explains the enormous success of of the modern synthesis. And so then we should ask ourselves, you know, this fractionation, is this a pragmatic strategy or is this a part of the metaphysics of evolution? Are these processes really as independent as we make out? Or is it just a kind of prudential, you know, assumption that allows us to study these things, to simplify our studies, to look at inheritance in isolation, right? And so, you know, one of, one of the things you find in the sciences is this, phenomenon that William James called vicious abstraction. So you, ab you take this really complicated thing you're trying to study, and you know, let's face it, biology is really complicated, so you have to simplify it, right? 
So you make these simplifying moves. So say you construct these abstract entities, gene types, right? And then you forget that you actually did that as a, you know, you, this is a kind of an intellectual act of kind of making up an entity. And the abstraction becomes real, right? And you think, oh yeah, so the fundamental unit is these genes. Well, no, you know, to a certain extent, we just made genes up as a matter of convenience. We made gene types up as a matter of convenience. So when we forget, when we take our kind of um, pragmatic simplification to be an expression of the fundamental metaphysics of the processes we're studying, uh, then we make a mistake. And I think that's the kind of mistake that the, uh, the modern synthesis practitioners have made. And that's the kind of mistake now that's being exposed by all this amazing stuff in evolutionary developmental biology and, and um, uh, alternative modes of inheritance and things like this. So there's been a lot of skepticism, is putting it lightly, for the extended evolutionary synthesis that, you know, adding um, epigenetic mechanisms of inheritance, uh, talking a lot more about niche construction, these other forces that um, are important in maybe many different ways in biology. But could you articulate what the limit is right now with the modern synthesis? I mean, as you said, biology is so complex, it's not surprising that even one really grand abstract theory can't explain it. Are we bumping up against the limits of what the modern synthesis was ever going to do? Or are we talking about different things when we invoke, let's add, let's call this new thing, this new way of doing biology, the extended evolutionary synthesis? Well, I definitely think that we're bumping up against the limits of the modern synthesis. If we think of the modern synthesis as just involving, you know, what the evolutionary, extended evolutionary synthesis people take as the, the central core, genes replicate and express phenotypes. Um, so, um, yeah, we're definitely up against those limits. And so one of the things you can do at this point is, well, look, you can look to the empirical work and say, ah, oh, well, there were way more mechanisms involved here than were countenanced in the original expression of the modern synthesis. So there's epigenetic inheritance and there's modularity of development and there's, there's um, niche construction and things like that. Right? A favorite of mine. Yeah, right. So, so we have to, it's absolutely right. We have to add in these extra causal chunks of biological reality to get a, a fuller picture. Right? So... Um, so I really applaud the uh, extended evolutionary synthesis in recognizing and making vivid the idea that the, the initial core of the modern synthesis is just inadequate, just empirically inadequate. So that's, that's fine, that's great. Um, and then there's the question of whether just adding more mechanisms, as it were, downstream of genes is going to be enough. Right? And... Um, so this, this is why I think of myself as not kind of involved in the, evolutionary, the extended evolutionary synthesis project, because I think that the problem that we've overlooked is, is that um, we've relied too heavily on this concept of mechanism as a strategy or a mode of explanation in the natural sciences. It's great for physics, and it's actually great for doing biology from the bottom up. Right? So uh, mechanism gives you a certain kind of understanding, a kind of component to system kind of understanding. You can understand why the system does what it does by citing the 
the capacities of, the, of its parts and the way they interact. And of course, the system behaves in the way it does because the parts interact in that way. But, and then you have to ask a, a further question. Well, why are the parts there? <laughs> why do they have the, the capacities that they have, right? And the agency perspective um, uh, is meant to show us that actually the parts of an organism have the capacities they have, they have the relations they have, in part because they're put there by the dynamics of the organism itself. And so the agency perspective gives you a kind of um, system to component understanding. Uh, and these are reciprocal and complementary, but you need them both. So I think the limitations of the extended evolutionary synthesis are that it relies really, really heavily on an extension of this component to systems mode of explanation. But the agency uh, perspective introduces this system to component understanding. So it's because organisms are capable of pursuing what Aristotle would call these ways of life that their parts are the way they are. They actually synthesize the materials that they're made of and they arrange those materials and they innovate and they adapt and they're, uh, and they're robust. And it's those dynamics that explain, well, it's those properties that explain the dynamics of organisms. And it's that dynamics that explains the integration and the structure of the components of organisms. We want to talk a lot about agency and, and your what you call situated Darwinism later, which I want to try to build up to it relatively slowly. Everything that you just said gets me very excited, but I'm hopeful that we can bring on a lot more people. I know Art has a question that sort of sits in that space. Well, yeah, yeah. But so, so before we move on, I just want to talk for another minute or two about this tension between the modern synthesis and the extended evolutionary synthesis and just get your view about, you know, what, what I hear modern synthesis proponents say about the extended evolutionary synthesis ideas, which is, um, you know, those are all great, and they're they're sort of additions that are easy for the modern synthesis to incorporate and to swallow, and it doesn't require any sort of fundamental rethinking. You know, it's more that the modern synthesis is a big tent, and it's happy to to bring in new ideas as they arise. Uh, what, what do you think about that? Well, that that's a really good point, and that, in part, that's what I um, was alluding to when I said we have to... Um, prevent kind of this facile definition of the modern synthesis as this very rigid, strict, and, and narrow, narrowly focused conception of biology. And, you know, you, you can just feel the frustrations of these defenders of the modern synthesis saying, like, what Darwin told us about niche construction, we know this, right? We know that development's complicated, you know? So, um, so in a way, I'm kind of sympathetic to the, this defense of the modern synthesis, that there's this kind of uh, defense that they mount. But, you know, I mean, these two camps see themselves as opposed to one another, and I seem to be sympathetic to them both, so I must be doing something wrong here. <laughs> You've got to take sides. Come on, don't you know it's a polarized environment? Yeah. <laughs> well, luckily philosophers, for philosophers, there's always a third option, and it's this that the, it has to do with this conception of abstraction, right? The modern synthesis is a really abstract theory. You take these abstract entities, gene types, and you construct an abstract entity, a population, an, an assemblage of gene types, and then you apply to the gene types this very abstract para parameter, growth rate, relative growth rate. 
and you can track the dynamics of these abstract populations in this very, very powerful way. And the uh, while skipping over the organism exactly, exactly leaving them out, right? And and it's absolutely right that this parameter fitness or growth rate has all those biological thing things packed into them. Right? It can accommodate any amount of biology. But I think what the defenders of the modern synthesis um, don't do is they don't acknowledge or realize the level of abstraction at which this theory actually works. It's not about uh, the nuts and bolts biology. It's basically identifying a universality phenomenon that we find in uh, thermodynamics. And you know, the, any time you have an assemblage of differentially growing or changing entities, you're going to have this really uh, the, this change in the population of, of uh, an ensemble that's expressible at a really high level of abstraction. And I think that's the core of the modern synthesis. That's what makes it so powerful. But, as, but it's not a theory of, of the metaphysics of evolution, or, you know, or as I say in the book, what happens when evolution happens. It's a very poor account of what happens when evolution happens. And I think there's a section in the book where you, you sort of say that R.A. Fisher was you know, really important and one of the, the, the main folks driving the modern synthesis. The methods that he used would be applicable to lots of things, not just life, right? And so such an abstract theory doesn't necessarily capture the things that we want to know about biology, Right. It's, you know, one of the things that I don't think we've talked a ton about yet is to what end do we want to apply a theory in the first place? And the, the, the sort of reasons that Fisher's motivations relative to Darwin's motivations, for example, and modern motivations for people working in extended evolutionary synthesis, not always the same sorts of things. But if a theory is so applicable as to not be beholden to just biology, you know, maybe it doesn't perfectly explained. It isn't super useful for a lot of the things we would want to know about biology. Well, yeah, I think that's right. But one of the things we really want to know about biology, this is like what Darwin started, is we want to know about the kinematics of populations. How do populations undergo change? And how can we track those? And how can we, uh, and how can we explain why there's, you know, like, where there's this kind of universal feature of biological populations. They change in these adaptive ways, these predictable, quantifiable ways. That's really important to know. And I think, you know, I, I guess Ernst Meyer said this, and I bring it up in the book, that the, the, the um, conceptual shift that Darwin introduced was this, what Eliot Sober calls population thinking, that the population is the unit of theoretical interest. And so that's a really important conceptual breakthrough and change. And what Fisher did was he really beautifully codified this really kind of abstract, uh, powerful population thinking, but at the expense of telling us about like the causes of evolutionary change, right? That's not, that's not in there and it's not the central interest or the central uh, project of say doing population genetics. Now, so uh, to get back to your question, if you're really interested in how organisms affect the specifics of evolution, then, then you can't be doing this abstract population thinking. You've got to get down and look at the organisms and how they participate in evolution. Well, 
while we're talking about monitors, this is uh, I also want to just dwell for a minute on concepts of the gene. So we you know we keep using this word gene, but um, maybe tell us about historical conceptions of the gene, and and what you know what what actually do genes do in organisms? Uh, there I, I think we all agree probably that they're not they're not blueprints, they're not plans. Um, there's been a real shift in in the way people think about you know genomes as kind of uh, storage organisms for information that can be deployed in in useful ways. But um, t tell us what you think about what 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 genes are and what their use is in biology. Oh my goodness! Well, that, that's a really tough one. So, um, so you mentioned history. There, there's been some wonderful histories of the gene, um, and be, uh, so I wouldn't um, presume to um, rewrite the history of the gene. But I think it's really interesting to just to consider that. The gene concept has served two roles, right? So there's, you know, the kind of phenomenological role of the gene, which is the you know, smallest dissociable heritable unit, the kind of thing, gene concept that classical genetics gave us. And then there's the chemical concept of the gene, some chunk of DNA or some region of DNA or something like that. And the gene served its um, theoretical purpose on the supposition that the entity, we, the chemical entity we identify as gene, serves the role of the phenomenological gene. And I think what's happened in, in developmental genetics is that it's just clear that the, that the, the chemical entity does not serve the, the phenomenological gene role. And so the, the concept of the gene has become bifurcated. So what should we think? So, you know, the, so, I mean, by serving this ph phenomenological role, I mean, just like, it would be perfect if genes translated one and one, one to one into phenotypes. It's nothing like that, right? <laughs> so what do we now think of genes? Well, it's clear that they have these functions. It's not clear that it can be said that genes play the executive role that the traditional conception of the gene required. So, so you know, um, Evelyn Fox Keller tells us, well, we should think of um, genes as repositories of information, not information about phenotypes, but stuff that the genome can use. And we should think of the genome as the really interesting structural unit here. Genomes um, seem to have this kind of executive function insofar as they exert an enormous amount of control over the use of genes and even the structure of genes, genes that are um, genes are re-engineered, they're moved around, they're repaired. And, and of course, then we can move this out. It's not just genomes that, uh, uh, that uh, use genes as a resource, but epigenetic mechanisms use genes as a resource. Modules use genes as a resource. So genes are this fantastic memory device. Um, but we should no longer think of them as having this executive control over the phenotype. Um, and we should, you know, we should probably not even think of them as principally the units of inheritance either. So inheritance seems to be distributed across the entire gene organism environment system. I mean, genetic inheritance is a particularly powerful form of inheritance because it's so long lived and so, such high fidelity. Um, but that's just a mere difference in degree. It's, that's not what makes it, it that that difference isn't sufficient to make genes the sole unit of inheritance. Yeah, let's let's talk for a minute about this 
disconnect between the, you know, so there is no one-to-one relationship between individual genes and individual phenotypes in, in most cases. I mean, there are strong associations in some for some some traits, but those are rare. Why why isn't there a stronger connection? And and I'm just going to pose here that you know there's all kinds of regulatory feedback networks at different levels of biological organization, including you know genetic networks, and then the sorts of physiological and homeostatic networks that arise as a as a function of interactions between you know genes and environment during during development. So is it those is it those feedback systems that are hiding the association between genes and phenotypes and and is that the sort of integration that you know scales up into to the organisms that are so important in your thinking? Uh, yeah, it's not so much that these um uh, these intermediaries hide this relation between genotype and phenotype. They constitute the relation between genotype and phenotype, right? Gen- phenotypes are the way they are, built insofar as they are by genes, precisely because these intermediate phenomena intervene in the way they do. Richard Dawkins has had an incredibly strong impact on the way that biologists and the, and the public, too, think about biology. And, you know, a lot of that can be tracked back to the selfish gene. There's a really neat quote in your book about uh, something from, from I think it was selfish gene, where uh, Dawkins is talking about willows shedding catkins as DNA rain. And you, and you use that as a sort of bio, evolutionary biology based on genes as replicators. Can you, can you just really quickly, before we move into agency, talk about the limits of thinking about evolution based on this replicator, with replicators sort of at the core of the theory. Right, yeah. Well, first off, I have to pay tribute to Richard Dawkins. The, the guy's brilliant. He's a brilliant rhetorician. And, uh, and that, um, that passage in particular really struck me, right, because he's, he's doing this thing that I mentioned that William James says scientists fall into he's ontologizing right he's saying it's raining information out there right it's all about information and he says you know it's a tiny part of the catkin but never mind it's just about the information right and at the end he says something really really crucial he says that's not a metaphor that's the truth he's engaging in this um in this uh, vicious reification right so so um so well look it's um so what's wrong with this, uh, with this picture? Well, um, you know, apart from kind of taking this abstraction too seriously, it's just simply just an empirical issue whether or not that's the way evolution works. You know, there, there's, there's a conceptual issue whether or not adaptive evolution even could work that way. And I think that we find from... Uh, uh, People like uh, Stuart Kaufman saying, well, actually, it couldn't. You, know, you couldn't get adaptive evolution by the simple accretion of randomly generated tiny little changes. You need, actually, the, the structures that are evolving need a kind of um, uh, architecture. And that architecture is strictly underdetermined by gene structure, right? So replicate. So there's one question, the, the kind of conceptual or theoretical question, whether or not you even could get evolution along, uh, along the lines that Dawkins says. It's just the accretion of random uh, uh, mutated replicators. And then there's the question about whether, as a matter of fact, um, the evolution we see around us 
is of this sort? And that's an empirical question, and I think the answer is clear. That's not the, not the way it works. Right? Yeah, so, so let's get into this idea of agency, which plays such a, a prominent role in your, your book and thinking. Um, and I guess just start by, by setting the table here. So so we know that organisms are integrated wholes. They have to be sort of, you know, functioning across the entirety of, of their development. They're self-building, they're self-sort of reproducing in, in complex ways. Um, and I guess I want to just start by asking, um, what what does that mean about organisms being agents, and and what does that mean to be an agent? Oh, that's a good question. <laughs> so um, maybe I should uh, just answer this by way of kind of intellectual autobiography. <laughs> so um, I didn't intend to start off writing about agency. I was started off writing about you know gene centered evolutionary biology and its discontents. And uh, one of the things that particularly struck me was uh, an argument from Richard Lewington from starting in 1978, but it comes up over and over and over again. And it, we can see it kind of woven through the spandrels of San Marco and, and uh, his book, The uh, Triple Helix. Uh, and it's this, that people took, took uh, Lewington to be kind of against the idea of adaptation. But that's not right at all. So Lewington is a really strong advocate of the concept of adaptation. He really wants this to be explained. And he says in his 1974 book, if we just do population dynamics and we don't hook it up to the concept of adaptation, we've forgotten what we were trying to explain in the first place. And his, um, his big objection to the way we understand adaptation is this kind of separation of the organism and the environment. So the environment exists out there as in uh, with the niches in it. And this is like the, the economy of nature that we have from Linnaeus. It's an old theological notion, right? And then biology is mutable. Form is mutable. It can change to fit these pre-existing niches, right? And Lewinson says that's completely wrong. I mean, that's not how we should understand um, uh, uh, adaptive evolution, simply be because the niche is constituted by the physical features of the environment, and that strictly underdetermines uh, what counts as an adaptation. So this is where we get to porpoises and paramecia, right? They live in the same environment, and they have they have locomotion. They have adaptations for locomotion in those environments, but they're radically different. So how do you explain the way they're different? Well, it's the way the organism experiences this environment. Now, organisms are active entities. They adapt to their environments, they change their environments, they transduce the causal influences of the environment into, as it were, experiences. And I don't mean, I don't mean perceptual experience, I just mean the way the environment affects them. So the way the environment affects an organism is a kind of joint project of the capacities of the organism and the features of the environment. And that's why we explain how we explain the difference between the adaptations of the paramecium and the adaptations of the porpoise. Okay, how do they do this? Well, they do this actively. They actively change their environments, they actively change their experience in their environment, and they actively change their component processes and structures and functions, right? So agency 
is this capacity, this unique capacity of organisms to, like, as it were, uh, be kind of authors of the experience of their environment. They don't have final control over what their environments are like, but they can, they can, as I say, transduce these experiences, transduce these features of the environment, and, uh, adapt to them, change their activities, change their structures in these ways, right? So it occurred to me that, oh, this is a kind of uh, notion of agency, right? And that this notion of agency you find in certain other literatures. So J.J. Um, um, Gibson's conception or account of perception starts with the idea of the perceiving individual as an agent moving through their environment and uh, experiencing their environment in ways uh, that are relevant to its purposes, its capacities. We see these things as graspable, otherwise we couldn't grasp them, right? We see this surface as supporting our weight, otherwise there'd be no point in leaning on it, that kind of thing, right? And so the environment for us is something for which, in, in, in Gibson's conception of perception, it's something um, we can use. It's something that's there uh, uh, that can be exploited in the pursuit of our purposes. And, and that's this idea that you bring up of affordances, right? Affordances, yeah, that's right, yeah. And affordances are interactions between organisms and their environment that uh, transduce the environment into opportunities and constraints that the organisms can use. Is that, is that a reasonable way of saying that? That's exactly right, yeah. So, uh, so I think the affordance concept is really important. It, it helps us to explain how it is, well, the, the, the external dynamics of organisms, how they move through their, uh, through their environments and why, but their internal dynamics too, why the parts are integrated in the, in the way they are, why organisms synthesize these very materials out of which they're made, what, you know, because they're conducive to the pursuit of the organism's goals and the exploitation of their affordance. And they also like, uh, create affordances, the, structures our capacities confer on organisms capacities to capabilities to pursue their lives in this particular way right so we should understand the integration of organisms and their movement through their environment in terms of the creation and exploitation of affordances yeah. and affordances are dynamic as you respond to afford an affordance other affordances open up right so there's this constant creation and exploitation of affordances going along. So my thought about agency was we should start there. We should acknowledge that this is what organisms are like, this is the kind of defining feature of life, and see how working from the, the taking the affordance notion as basic um, transforms our understanding of the dynamics of evolution. Can, can I ask you to put together, like sort of you know, what we've been talking about represent the same ideas in the context of the modern synthesis to, to really try to directly contrast these two things. So if you've got genetic variation out in a population and selection sorting that variation, the absence of agency is, you know, whatever variation exists and whatever comes up by mutation is, is winnowed and some goes forward and some doesn't as a function of inheritance. But when you add in the agency, I think you're saying that everything profoundly changes because the, the path by which evolution happens, the opportunities that present themselves that are going to influence how selection works within generations, all that changes. I guess it does. I mean, so I, I think the, um, the role of genetic variation 
as, as this kind of simple notion has been really vastly overplayed, right? So, um, so I mean, you mentioned Dennis Noble, and Dennis Noble's work shows us that you know the, the connection between genetic vari variation and phenotypic variation is extremely loose, right? And you know, this is another of Lewinton's themes when we found when we when gel electrophoresis started out, biologists found out this enormous amount of genetic variation that just you know there's a massive amount that just couldn't be couldn't be used to explain phenotypic variation. So there's something going on there. Raw, vari raw genetic variation is not, as it were, seen by uh, natural selection. Why? Because, well, first we know that genes are uh, deployed in gene regulatory networks, and then the same phenotypic output can sustain an enormous amount of variation. Uh, we also know that small variations can produce uh, innovations and so you know like a very small change in a gene regulatory network can move this network into this new uh, attractor space where there's a, a developmental or a, a, a morphological or um, phenotypic novelty so very very little change in uh, in genetic structure can produce large changes Armin tells us that these major, major novelties in evolution are brought about by the redeployment of uh, uh, you know, gene networks that are there, they've been there for hundreds of millions of years anyway, they're just put together in a new way, massive new change that opens up all sorts of affordances, but with, with really no, no genetic change, right? So this idea that somehow or other we can map genetic variation onto the kinds of things that make a difference to selection is a little bit naive, that uh, turns out, right? And then getting back to the, the, the kind of uh, the Dawkins rhetoric. So Dawkins lays out a set of conditions that he thinks are necessary and sufficient for adaptive evolution as we know it. It just seems as a matter of empirical fact that those conditions aren't met in the living world, right? just move right past paramecia and porpoises and I, I have to, I have to go back um, because this is a topic that's of great interest to me I'm, I'm, I'm sort of thrilled by your arguments in in this area in part because they fit so well with things that I'm working on in my own my own lab so I'm I've been quite interested in um, the connection between climates writ large and the microclimates that organisms actually experience as they as they move around and one of the major ideas is that, you know, microclimates are highly diverse and um, how an organism experiences them depends profoundly on the size that they are and how they move around in, in their environment. And so we, we've been thinking about kind of the, the biophysics of that. And and when you, when you were talking about porpoises and paramecia and how they experience water differently, I, I guess I have, I have mixed feelings about that. Like on the one hand, I feel like that that's a, another version of what I just said about about the connection between climates and microclimates, and, and that's thrilling to me. But I, I also can see sort of the more standard modern synthesis way of thinking about that, which is that, of course, body size affects an organism's experience of its environment. And, you know, in the in the context of water, like body size is related to things like Reynolds number, right? So the, the hydrodynamic and viscous forces that, that impinge on organisms. And that, of course, is going to affect... The propulsive mechanisms that they evolve, and so and so, I guess I, I'm having a hard time resolving like 
you know, how is that going to upset the the apple cart for people invested in in the modern synthesis? Yeah, exactly. That's that's a really good question. Okay, so the porpoise paramecium thing, I think, is a very good example of this idea that the way an organism is structured, its size, affects the way it experiences it, its environment. So, and the Reynolds number example is perfect, right? Now, standard modern synthesis views that take this, um, that, that have this demarcation between the organism and the environment um, can perfectly accommodate that. So it's, in, in some sense, it's a bad example, in part because it's passive, right? Just an organism is the size it is. And, um, and then that size determines how it experiences it, its environment. But then, uh, so we need to add to this then, the, the idea that actually this relationship between the uh, organism and its experience environment is not a passive thing, it's a dynamic thing. So um, this uh, idea that the way the environment is experienced is conditioned by the way the organism is, should be extended to the idea that the way the environment is experienced is conditioned by what the organism does, right? So in a temperature case, you know, as, as things move around, they change the temperature of their environment. They, uh, there again, that's it's partly a passive thing because it's the temperature of their environment, like the Reynolds number, that's this measurable external parameter. But, um, but the niche construction uh, literature is all about the way organisms engineer their environments. They literally change um, what they do, right? So, um, so then this, this conception of the organism-environment relation has to be, I think, a dynamic one. Now, the traditional approach to niche construction, this is something I call Churchillian niche, of niche construction, is this kind of passive thing that organism, Churchill said, we create our buildings and thereafter they create us. So that's <laughs> like a statement of niche construction, right? So, <laughs> so, so it's really not that new, Churchill knew about it. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but there the idea is like a building, I take it, it's just this static thing, it's there, it's a, you know, it's a measurable feature of the environment and it causally impinges on, on our lives. But I thought the real insight in niche construction was simply that you can combine this idea, the corpus paramecium idea with the niche construction idea by saying what these things have in common is that what organisms are doing is not simply changing or experiencing the external features of their environment, they are exchanging, uh, they're changing the interface between the organism and the environment, the way it affects them. And ultimately, it's not what the environment is like, it's the way it affects an organism that counts, right, for the differential survival and reproduction. So if we take on board that this uh, effect, this interface between the organism and environment is actively um, constructed and curated by the organism's capacities, its goals, what it does, then we get this idea that really it's the affordance that's, um, that's important in explaining differential survival and reproduction and not simply the environment. So Dennis, we wanna start to move into the, as scientists, how do we make progress? What do we do? What do our studies look like? Let me let's try to transition there and tie up some of these ideas one of the advantages that has been invoked about the modern synthesis was that when the pieces were sort of investigated as independent, progress could be made, right? Because it's sort of 
just advance of science will work better when things can, if they do work that way, they can at least be conceived that way. But you talk a lot about in the book about reciprocal causation. So if, I mean, I guess to put it bluntly, do you think that it's possible to sort of study these processes, affordances, agency as independent? Or basically how to how do we take into consideration if, if we like these ideas, if we can see value in these ideas, how are we going to make progress when one of the advantages of the modern synthesis was this parsing of different forces? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, so um, we can think of the modern synthesis strategy as, um, as a pragmatic strategy. So yeah, we get some good purchase on development by thinking of it as like divorced from natural selection or something like that, or get good purchase on the concept of inheritance by thinking of it as not involved in introducing any adaptive bias, right? So on prudential grounds, it's quite reasonable to do that, right? And then we have to think about, this is more on this idea of abstraction, then we have to think about putting it, this back into the whole picture. And if the way we uh, separate, say, the component processes of evolution, um, makes it the case that when we put them back together, we don't get it right. We got these, we've got these, these four wholly discrete independent processes, then we're distorting the real process of evolution. So it's very good as a, as a, a exploratory strategy uh, to simplify what we've got, to take systems in isolation, right? But you always have to remember that you've isolated this system and then you have to like, as it were, pay it back when you put when you reintegrate this system. If it truly is independent, then you don't have to do any great uh, feats of integration to get them back together. But if it isn't independent, then you can introduce distortions by supposing that these systems really are, these processes really are independent from one another. And so my thought is that the, the modern synthesis is a really powerful um, uh, instance of a certain kind of um, approach that we have in the natural sciences, which is a decompositional approach. Right? And decompositional approaches work really, really well, right? So most of our sciences are decompositional. You break things into their parts. Under the supposition, as Nancy Cartwright says, that when you break things into the parts, you haven't really changed them that much, right? If you really thought you were completely denaturing something by breaking into its parts and looking how the parts work, you wouldn't do it. So then you have to be really careful when you, t you take this isolated system and you put it back into its context, right? So let's break things apart. Let's decompose all we like. We have to understand, though, that we repay a debt when we reintegrate these uh, uh, decomposed strategies. We have to make sure that we're not, um, we're not carrying over these um, assumptions that we've taken on on pragmatic grounds into the reintegration of these processes together. So, and it turns, it strikes me that the, the component processes of evolution, these are discrete effects, but they're all, you know, they're all parts of say development, innovation, adaptive bias. These, these are manifested in, in development. Inheritance, this, this is manifested in, in development too, right? So these, uh, the processes that pr produce these discrete effects are actually integrated and not discrete. Right. And if we, I mean, my dilemma is that if we completely accept that they're integrated and, you know, I've, I've taken the Kool-Aid, I, I completely um, agree on that front. 
maybe it's unfair to ask you because this is a dilemma that every everybody sort of interested in complexity I think is confronting now. How do we do the work if the history of progress has been about decomposition and now we know that decomposition potentially misses something? We still want progress. What's the alternative approach that's taken? Is there something altogether different? Because what I'm hearing from you is that we continue, in a sense, to do what we've done, but we recognize that there's more going on. But how do we, I mean, how do we make progress with that other stuff that's potentially going on? Yeah, good question. I guess that's why I'm not a practicing scientist anymore. <laughs> but. Um... Well, I guess, so we, we've got this kind of, you know, decompositional strategy. We might think there's an alternative strategy, which is something like a dynamical strategy. So, you know, when we do our, like, statistical treatment of thermodynamics and things like this, we're looking at the gross dynamics of systems quite independently of, of a decomposition of them into their parts, right? And so maybe what we can do in, um, in the case of organisms is think of, uh, say, gene systems as complex dynamic systems. Uh, so people like Yogi Yeager talk about the, um, the, the dynamics of development. So we think of development as taking, um, taking place in this phase space and it has certain attractors and it's certain, so we can see uh, the genes as contributing to this dynamical uh, surface, I guess, that, 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 that gene systems move through, that organisms move through. And so one thing you can do, I suppose, is just um, think, of, uh, what organis think of organisms as dynamical systems and then how they move through their phase space. And then in the case of organisms, how they construct their phase space, right? They, they make um, attractors as they go along because they have a, the capacity to stabilize themselves against their conditions, to innovate against their conditions. So fundamentally, we're looking at a dynamical process. Now, what, once you have studied a dynamical process as a dynamical process, well, you can freeze it at certain points and say, then do the decomposition. Say, oh, and how do the genes contribute to this dynamical process in this context? Yep, I love it. I mean, so it almost sounds like we're returning to the history of biology, becoming natural historians again, but embracing all of the complexities of many levels of organization, describing biological variation in its full gory glory. And then because you know the dynamism, then you can drill back down, you know, start the decomposition over all over again. But that's a, in, in one sense, that's what systems biology sort of is about, developing the methodologies for that. But the conceptual underpinnings as I've seen it, you know, it still doesn't seem to have come full circle with all of those pieces. Well, that, that's right. So one of the things about systems biology that, uh, I mean, I really applaud this as a, as a strategy, but uh, one of the points I tried to make in the book is that, um, look, um, that's all very well doing systems biology, but systems biology basically sets out a phase space or state space and takes that as static. But the crucial thing about the agency of organisms is that they actually construct the phase space as they go along. That's going to make studying organismal biology way harder. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but but I, I mean, but I think it's, if that's really right, it's worth taking that into account, right? So... Um, one of the things you build up toward to the end of your book is uh, an idea that you call situated Darwinism. And 
let's just unpack that for a minute. So, so what, what is situated Darwinism? Can you draw all these threads together for us? Oh yeah. It's been a while. <laughs> um, yeah. Okay. So there's Darwinism. Uh, and Darwin says, look, um, the fundamental explanance, the thing that explains all this is the struggle for life. <clears throat> right? So he says, all these things follow inevitably. And you think he's going to say natural selection. He says, no, the struggle for life. That's something that organisms do, right? And so uh, that's, so I want to preserve that core um, conception. That's the Darwinism part. And then the question is, well, what's the struggle of, for life constituted of? What is it, right? And... I, you know, I borrow from certain uh, work in the philosophy of cognitive science and philosophers like Merleau-Ponty and the idea is, well, look, you know, struggling is, it's a kind of skillful coping with the conditions of one's own existence, right? Say, look, the environment is something that, you know, we use, we transform, we experience, uh, like, filtered through what it is we can do and what it is our purposes are, right? And so um, we should think then of the, the struggle for existence as the constitutive organisms embedded in these environments that really aren't experienced as environments, they're experiences, experienced as affordances. And we start from there. The struggle is the coping, skillful coping of organisms with their affordances. And so that's um, an attempt to take Darwin's notion of struggle and just change it a little bit so that what, what the struggle really is, it's the dealing with affordances. And, that, and that's the central idea. I think that's the idea. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll take it from you. <laughs> so, so just ov overall, what, what has been the reaction to your book among biologists and among, say, proponents of the modern synthesis, do you, do you feel like um, it's had the impact you envisioned, given what I feel like is the sort of radicalness of your, your idea? I don't know what, it, what kind of um, reaction I envisaged. I kind of wrote this on the fly. I just had to get it off my chest. <laughs> and I had a contract that was about to expire, so I wrote it really fast. <laughs> and uh, so I wasn't actually thinking about, you know, the wider world as, as, I, as I wrote this. Um, so uh, it's been, there's not been a lot of take up, and I guess I understand why. And when you consider that, you know, most of the in the recent years, we've been really preoccupied with the extended evolutionary synthesis and the, and the pushback for that. You know, the last thing we need just now is another player in the field. And I really think this is a different position from the extended evolutionary synthesis. So I think it's been kind of um, overlooked. You know, some people write to me and say, oh, I really like this, but you know, I don't think there's been a great uptake. I mean, that said, in the last year or so, um, so four biology labs and me uh, started up this project called Agency in Living Systems to really kind of figure out this con conception of agency and the difference the conception of agency makes to evolution and crucially 
to get to Marty's question, how to study agency as this evolutionary phenomenon, right? So there's been some movement. I'm really enjoying this, uh, this project in, um, in uh, agency and living systems. It's really terrific. So you know, one of the questions is like, what kinds of things are agents? One of our scientists works on, on the uh, behavior of termite mounds, right? And so are there superorganismal agents? I don't know, right? But this is uh, something that we can, and, and if there are, does this uh, affect our understanding of their evolution? This is something that, um, uh, that I think is really, really exciting. There's, um, not too long ago, I was locked in a room um, with a bunch of scientists at, um, at the Chicago Hilton at O'Hare. <laughs> we were brought together uh, by um, the Templeton Foundation. And then they wanted to put piles of money into uh, the uh, research into natural purposes. The very idea that purpose uh, is a natural phenomenon, it's something we can naturalize, it's something we can, um, we can operationalize, we can measure, and we can use to explain. And um, Scott Turner was actually in the same room. It was really great to meet him there. And so I, I think people are starting to think in terms now that the, this taboo we've had about agency, about purpose as a natural phenomenon, this is starting to give, a, give way a little, right? And so I would, I would like it if this book contributed to this idea that we can actually make sense of purpose, agency as natural phenomena and study them as natural phenomena. We, we talked to Scott Turner last year about his book, uh, Purpose and Desire. It was a really fun conversation. And, and let me just ask, since you brought it up, what, what do you think is the relationship between his idea of purpose and your usage of purpose and, and agency? Are they, are they similar? Uh, yeah, they're quite similar. So um, they're, they're different. there's different emphasis, of course. So, um, so Scott seems to be very uh, much motivated by the kinds of um, perspective that we get from Claude Bernard and Canguilhem and people like that. And this is how the internal constitution of an agent um, maintains its structure and function and integrity. Um, my con concept of agency is, I call it ecological, which is to say it starts from this idea of the experience of the uh, active agent in its embedded in its environment. That's the situated uh, part of situated Darwinism. So these are, these are complementary uh, things. Uh, they are, um, uh, I really like the way Scott has developed this idea about, about the internal dynamics of something conferring on it this capacity to pursue purposes. And my ecological approach to agency emphasizes the consequences of things having purposes for the way they experience and move through their space, their environments, right? So I think they're very much... Um, Complementary. We disagree on cognition, so Scott thinks it's cognition all the way down, and I, I, I think this is maybe largely terminological distinction, but I think we have to make... Um, one of the problems with accepting agency as a natural phenomenon is that for most people it seems to presuppose cognition and intention and intellect. Right? This is really highly sophisticated intellectual phenomenon. It isn't, you know? <laughs> Every organism is an agent of sort because it pursues purposes. But then we have to make this notion of purpose and agency safe for the natural sciences. So we can't go around saying like paramecia or thinking about these 
<laughs> about these um, toxin gradients, right? So, so one of the challenges to this kind of naturalized approach of agency is to make room for um, kind of entry-level agency, um, but also uh, show how like, cognitive agency is a very special case of agency. Agency is not fundamentally cognitive phenomenon, but cognition is fundamentally an agential phenomenon. We have to understand and account, we have to allow for an account of cognition to come out of our account of agency and not the other way around as traditionally it's been. So Scott, Scott's perspective on, on purpose, um, I, I don't think I was fully on board with, with um, you know, his, everything. I mean, 95% agreement. And I think a lot of that comes from an art too, probably. We're ecological physiologists. So one of the first things that comes to our mind when any of this comes up is homeostasis. And it's a reasonable way to, to wrap your head around it. For you, though, you know, you said that you think about agency coming from an ecological place. But, you know, we're, we're talking about teleology, just to, to put it, you know, to, to name the thing. Where does the drive come from? I mean, how, how do you, what's the driver of these affordances or sort of, if it's not cognition that's motivating the, the, the organisms to make the choices? Yeah, where, where's the purpose? What's the source of the purpose? So in my philosophical life, I, um, I'm offering, I'm trying to offer an account, a naturalized account of purpose, goal, stuff like this. And um, the starting point is that, look, um, the, on the traditional view, to a goal is something that's kind of like inherently evaluatively good or something, right? And that looks like a very unnatural phenomenon, right? Um, so the approach I've been taking and people in my lab have been taking is that actually a goal is just a very complex relational property of a state of affairs. Uh, the, the fundamental uh, phenomenon is goal-directedness, and you can see goal directedness. You want a squirrel running around in the park. It's collecting nuts and it's avoiding the dogs, right? It's pursuing these goals. And so goal directedness is this empirically observable um, uh, phenomenon. And a goal is just the end of a goal directed process, right? So there's nothing, there's nothing metaphysically um, uh, dubious about a goal, right? But then you, but because you, we actually have these natural systems that have this kind of adaptive robustness. They can marshal their capacities in, in the way Scott talks about in, um, in promoting homeostasis, for instance. They can marshal their capacities in ways that bias their movements, their dynamics, in favor of attaining the, and maintaining these goal states, right? So, so purposiveness is just an observable property of the natural world. And so um, we don't need any notion of deliberation or, uh, or, the, or as Aristotle would say, doing things under the guise of the good. We just, we just get to observe goal directedness, right? We get to observe purpose. So purpose is just, you know, when you have a, anything that has robust adaptive dynamics, that thing has a purpose, right? And we start from there. And the really cool thing then is that um, because things, because these systems can reliably attain their purposes, we can cite the purpose as our explanation of why it did what it did, right? You can say, it did this in order to swim up this, this nutrient gradient, right? That's a teleological explanation. So once we allow that, we have naturalized teleological explanations. And a lot of the work I do in my uh, 
philosophical life is uh, on the structure of, of explanations. And I tried to show that actually teleological explanations have the exact same structure as causal explanations, only they're time reversed. So if causal explanations are, are naturalistically acceptable, teleological explanations should be too. Huh. Okay, that's very satisfying. When you mentioned the Templeton Foundation, I think alarm bells go off for a lot of people. So I wanted to make sure that we could say a little bit about that, how, you, how you're thinking teleology in the context of, of ordinances and agency. Yeah, I have, uh, you know, the exact same reservations, to tell you the truth. You know, I wasn't averse to talking to them. But they put you in this room with all these smart people and they say, the Templeton Foundation has changed <laughs> since Sir John died. Now we get to run it the way we want, and you know, and and I I appreciate that you know they're looking for big questions that are slightly out of the mainstream, and there was really no theological agenda there, and yeah, so. Yeah. I'll go with that. So, so yeah. one more thing. You, you brought up cognition, and we also talked to um, Eva Jablanka and Monty Ginsberg about consciousness. Their book, was it last year, Art, or two years ago? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, to read the book, I'm, I'm sure your answer would be different, but where do you think consciousness fits in? And in particular, I guess, where does agency show up, and what role have you thought about the role of consciousness in sort of situation, situated Darwinism? Right. So you guys are Americans, right? You have this Fifth Amendment thing. (laughs) 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 I think I I might go with that one. Fair enough. This this is like way too hard for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't even know. I mean, to tell you the truth, I don't even know what consciousness is. You know, like I know some when I see some, but that's, that's as far as I go. I do think that the traditional ways we've thought about consciousness have been so unfruitful that we've got to do something else. But as for as far as a positive contribution, I've got nothing to say on this. <laughs> but I'd like to look at Eva's book. I, uh, um, I don't know it, so. Yeah, it's, it's, a wonder, it's a wonderful book. It was a great conversation. So let me ask you one that's, I mean, maybe, well, definitely a lot simpler, but, you know, it's still maybe at the margins of, of where your brain has gone with these things. Um, a lot of my research has to do, we call it disease ecology, and so I'm sort of interested in the various roles that individuals and species play in the ecological dynamics of especially zoonotic diseases, the ones that, that you know, spill into humans too. And in biomedicine, um, you know, kind of like the modern synthesis the, the major workhorse, if the modern synthesis has been the workhorse in evolutionary biology, the workhorse in most of sort of uh, biomedicine has been the model organism. Have you thought much about the relevance of agency and sort of the utility of model organisms for improving and managing our health? Uh, no. Well, great. We can write that paper over the next couple of years. <laughs> yes, good, good. Yes. Yeah, exactly. But, I mean, I think this is a really interesting phenomenon. So I was talking about abstraction here, right? Taking things, and that's like taking these really complicated processes out of their context, right? And model organisms are a kind of physical abstraction, right? Because, you know, you, you, you've got these things in their single bread lines, and they've got these... You, 
this really, really narrow uh, range of uh, phenomena and, and structures and capacities. And you use them as a proxy for this really complicated um, uh, phenomena that we want to discover. So in certain ways, it sounds strange to say, but model organisms are abstractions. Right? They're perfectly concrete entities, but they're, the, they're abstract representations of these really complex phenomena. Right. So I take it that, that what you're getting at is the idea that, well, we, we might have the, uh, an oversimplified idea of disease dynamics by doing our experiments on these model organisms. That makes the experiments tractable, but then again, it's a question of, okay, you do this experiment and then you have to put it back in its natural context. Are we missing important features of the dynamics by doing that? Well, although I have, I have a related question, which is you can almost broaden this beyond model organisms and ask about doing anything in the lab with organisms, right? Because you, you've brought them out of their natural environment, you put them in some sort of other environment, and now you're asking questions about them interacting with their these completely novel affordances in the lab. Maybe that's just not the way to do biology. Well, you know, the, um, in early modern science, the idea of an experiment was seen as an abomination precisely because it's like taking these complex phenomena and denaturing them. Of course, well, you know, the proponents of the experiment won out for very good reasons, but, you know, we get to ask ourselves, okay, so, you know, what is, what are we missing by doing this decomposition, by doing this simplification, right? And I'm willing to bet that most of the time it's not much, but I also think, as you can tell, that um, we miss quite a bit by doing this with organisms. Well, uh, Dennis, it's been a fantastic conversation and uh, really appreciate you talking to us. Um, it's uh, mind-bendingly and interestingly beautiful. So thank you. Oh, thank you. Well, I really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Big Biology. If you're interested in supporting our show, please become a patron at patreon.com slash bigbio or go to our website, www.bigbiology.org and make a one-time donation. And a little homework for everyone is we're really hoping to grow the show. Grants from the National Science Foundation, our universities, your generosity on Patreon, and other mechanisms are improving our long-term financial viability, but we're not totally out of the woods yet. So, in the next few days, promise us to do one of the following. Post something you liked or didn't like about this or past shows on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or any other social media platform you like. We love getting input from listeners, including guests and topic suggestions, as well as your thoughts about past episodes. Or leave a review or rating on iTunes or Reddit. Ratings alone are a great help, but reviews are especially apt to attract new fans. Or just take the quintessential old school route, what we on Big Biology also call the Art Woods approach, and tell three friends about us in person or even via that dead contraption most of us rarely use anymore, the telephone. <laughs> Pick up your rotary <laughs> phone and dial. <laughs> Also stay tuned for an announcement about our next intern search. Season four starts in fall, and this summer we'll start searching for new members for the Big Biology team. On our next episode, we talk to Tim Linton, director of the Global Systems Institute and chairing climate change in our system science at the University of Exeter, about his new paper in the journal Trends in Ecology and Evolution. 
entitled Survival of the Systems. Across ecology and across culture, there are different ways in which you can get towards maybe this idea of coherent replication of all the various ingredients of a complex system, but it's not trivial to see how that works for, for say, a rainforest or a, a savanna, if you conceptualise the savanna as including various grasses and the trees and the ungulates. Thanks to Steve Lane for designing and managing our website. Dana Baxter, Ajinkia Dahaki, and Jordan Greer help produce the podcast and manage our social media. And thanks to Ruth Demery for producing this episode. Thank you to the College of Public Health at the University of South Florida, the College of Humanities and Sciences at the University of Montana, and the National Science Foundation for support. Music on the episode is from Pottington Bear. 